Well, good morning, everybody. Um, and a particular welcome if you're with us for the first time. We're absolutely delighted to have you here. Uh, can I please encourage you to keep the Bible open at the passage that Brenda read for us and also just have that white bulletin open in front of you because that gives you an outline of where we're going to be going together in the next few minutes. Uh, but first I'm going to pray. Well, the New Testament says that all scripture is God-breathed. And yet, Lord, when we look at this text, our hearts tremble because it seems so culturally remote from where we are this morning, so far removed from the troubles and struggles of daily living. So, Lord, we need your help. Lord, please draw near to us. Please open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. There's a, a documentary series on the National Geographic channel called Air Crash Investigations. Uh, it's a rather unsettling title, especially if you're about to make another overseas ministry trip. Uh, I'm not actually an expert on the program, but I'm told that most of the episodes follow the, the, the same basic pattern. Uh, so a plane is preparing to take off. Uh, we see the the pilots discussing the flight plan and doing the important pre-flight checks. Uh, they're highly professional, they're totally in control. Uh, there may be some concerns about the weather or other matters, but basically everything looks fine. Uh, it's the normal beginning to a normal flight. <clears throat> and then we're shown the passengers boarding the plane. Uh, they make their way down the aisles they, they find their seats, they store their luggage, and uh, the occasional one is new to flying, so they're understandably feeling just a little bit nervous. But most of the passengers are looking totally relaxed, and occasionally we're told a little bit about them. Uh, this family over here is going on vacation. Uh, someone else is visiting a relative that they haven't seen for some time. Uh, there's a businessman going on a trip He's made this trip a hundred times. He's totally chilled. Everybody is settling in. The regular announcements are being made about the exits and the seatbelts and all that kind of thing. Everything's routine. Nobody has any reason to think that this flight is going to be different from any other. But then at some point during the flight, unusual things begin to happen. Uh, at first, they're scarcely noticeable. There's an unexpected warmth in the cabin. And then there's a strange noise in the background and the lights on the instrument panel in the cockpit begin to flash. And then the pilots have real difficulty in controlling the aircraft. And finally, there's a sickening lurch to one side followed by screams, chaos and darkness. And then the rest of the program uh, describes the investigation that follows. There's a search for survivors. That's obviously important. But equally important, there is a search for answers. I mean, after all, the flight had started very well. Nobody had expected this. 
And so, meticulously, piece by piece, the the events that led up to the disaster are examined. And every scrap of recoverable wreckage is analysed in a search for the cause of the crash. In particular, they want to find something called the black box. Because the black box explains what went wrong. The explanation might be deeply disturbing, but it's essential because it enables effective action to be taken so that the same thing doesn't happen again. Now that, I think, is a very helpful way to think about our passage this morning. Uh, Last week we saw that the book of Judges got off to a really good start. Joshua left a tremendous legacy. Uh, The tribes of Israel inquired of God. They were working together. Uh, They moved at God's command. Uh, They were victorious in battle. And they experienced God's blessing both at a personal and at a national level. God was with them. Everything seemed to be absolutely fine. But then towards the end of the passage, we noticed last week that there were one or two unsettling signs that not everything was going according to plan. In verse 19 of chapter 1, we saw that Judah could not dislodge the Canaanites from the coastal plain. And in verse 21, the men of Benjamin couldn't get the Canaanites out of Jerusalem. Uh, So the result was a kind of stalemate. Uh, The Canaanites lived alongside the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem until the time when the book of Judges was written, which may have been three or four hundred years later. Now, I know at that stage it's not a disaster at the same level as a plane crash. But they are warning signs. And they're warning signs that raise important questions because the answers are not immediately obvious. I mean, if the Lord was with the men of Judah, which is what the text says, why were the iron chariots of Canaan such a big deal? And why, after Jerusalem was conquered, did the people of Benjamin allow the Canaanites to stay there? Now, we've got to think carefully about these questions if we're going to understand what really went wrong and learn what God might be saying to us this morning. Now, before we plunge in, just a quick word about how to read Old Testament books like Judges. Uh, For a start, please don't panic about the place names. I heard one or two mutterings after the sermon last week about the place names and the names of the tribes. And they can be confusing. But this isn't a geography lesson, so don't get stressed about the names. So let me give you two keys for understanding Old Testament stories. The first key to understanding any Old Testament story is to keep your eyes on God. God is the hero of every Old Testament story. It's not Joshua, it's not Caleb. 
And you see, because God is unchanging, because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, what we learn about God in these stories is still true today. And then the second key that we need to remember is that human nature doesn't change either. Uh, The people in Israel might have had unusual names, they may have lived in some pretty strange places and in a very different culture. But the basic patterns of our fallen human nature are just the same today as they were then. We might be more sophisticated. We might be more technologically advanced. But you and I are just as susceptible to pride, to unbelief and spiritual compromise as they were. And if we keep our minds focused on those two keys when we're reading the Old Testament, we're not going to get confused about the details and we will hear what God is saying to us. Now having said that, in our passage this morning, the focus shifts from Judah to the house of Joseph. Come with me to verse 22. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel and the Lord was with them. So at first everything seems to be going well. Bethel is a strategic town about nine miles north of Jerusalem and the Lord is with the men of Joseph just as he had been with the men of Judah. And they too are successful. Or are they? Because you see, in the rest of the passage, there are are a number of failures. There are a number of setbacks. And then right at the very end of the passage, there's that surprising and shocking word of explanation from God. But if you and I are going to understand what went wrong and how this speaks to us, we need to be like air crash investigators. And we need to start by examining the wreckage. So firstly, in verses 22 to 26, there is a hollow victory. A hollow victory. Now, there's no denying that the uh, victory at Bethel was significant from a military standpoint, because by taking Bethel, Israel put themselves in a strong position to take the hill country to the north. On top of that, the way that it was taken showed considerable military skill. Uh, In verse 23, you'll notice that spies were sent to check out the defences. And then in verse 24, a man who was leaving the city was approached and promised that his life would be spared if he cooperated. And with that man's help, the house of Joseph got access to the city. They took their enemies by surprise. They wiped out the inhabitants as God commanded them, but they spared the collaborator and his family just as they had said. Now let me ask you, does that remind you of anything? Because it ought to. If you were with us last year, you'll remember that this sounds just like the way that Joshua won the victory at Jericho. The spies 
the cooperation of an insider, the destruction of the inhabitants. It looks like Jericho all over again, but this time there's a twist. There's a totally unexpected development that brings this story to a completely different kind of ending. Because in verse 23, we're told that Bethel's pre-Israelite name was Luz, or Luz. That was its Canaanite name. And when the man is spared here, in verse 26, he goes to the land of the Hittites, which is modern-day Syria, and he builds a new Luz as a memorial to the old one. Now what you and I need to notice here is that unlike Rahab at Jericho, this man doesn't become an Israelite. He doesn't bow the knee to the God of Israel. No, he remains a citizen of Luz. So he's still a Canaanite at heart. He retires to a safe distance and he builds something that is within easy contact of future generations of Israelites. Because, in verse 26, the writer of Judges says the new city was called Luz, and that is its name to this day. So, in other words, it's not just the man and his family that survive. No, no, it's Canaanite culture that survives in a very tangible and accessible form, a city. So you see, Luz hasn't actually been conquered. It simply moved down the road. And the end result is two cultures, one Israelite, one Canaanite, living very closely together. Now that was not God's plan. God's plan was that all signs of Canaanite culture were to be destroyed, and I'll come back and say something about that in a moment. But can you see that the the victory at Bethel actually turns out to be a hollow victory? It's no real victory at all. But there's a puzzle here, isn't there? Because verse 22 says that when the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, the Lord was with them. So you see, I mean, if the Lord was with them... Why did things turn out this way? Why did things go wrong? Well, at this stage, the the answer isn't clear. We need more evidence. So let's move on and consider, secondly, the perplexing pattern in verses 22 and following. Uh, So these verses are summarising the fortunes of the northern tribes from uh, Manasseh in verse 27... Uh, to Dan in verse 34. And it's not a pretty story. There are one or two successes. Uh, For example, in verse 28, we're told that when Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labour. And there are one or two other things like that in verse 30 and again in verse 35. So, the Israelites did get the upper hand in some places. But the passage as a whole begins on a negative note. And as we read on to the end of the chapter, it becomes clear that Israel's position is deteriorating alarmingly. 
Because first of all, the Canaanites hold out in certain areas and um, end up living among the Israelites. And then the Israelites live among the Canaanites. And finally, at the end of the passage, the Amorites, which is just another name for the Canaanites, stop the Israelites from coming down into the coastal plains and push them back into the hills, verse 34. So, so what began with a victory at Bethel actually ends up in a humiliating defeat in verse 34 and a general situation that can at best be described as a stalemate. Israel are living in a land that they failed to conquer completely. And again, we want to ask the question, well, what went wrong? I mean, if God was with them, verse 22, why did they fail? Well, this time there's a clue. Because five times we're told in this section that various Israelite tribes did not drive out the Canaanites. Do you see that? Do you see that repetition in the passage? In verse 27, Manasseh didn't. In verse 29, Ephraim didn't. In verse 30, Zebulun didn't. In verse 31, Asher didn't. And in verse 33, Naphtali didn't. Will you please notice that it does not say they could not. It says they did not. The implication is that they made a conscious decision not to drive out the Canaanites, contrary to the word of God. And it seems they didn't really want to. We're not told why, but but it seems that their resolve to obey the Lord has weakened. One or two people say, well, they were actually only being realistic. After all, we saw last week that Judah hadn't been able to drive the Canaanites out of the coastal plain because they had chariots of iron. And Judah had been designated the premier tribe by God. So if Judah couldn't do it, why would anybody else be able to? But the big question remains, doesn't it? If God was with them, why were the iron chariots such a problem? Why did the other tribes have to compromise in this way? Well, the real cause of Israel's failure is still still not clear to us. And so further probing of exactly what went wrong is needed. The chief investigator has not yet submitted his final report, but he's about to do so. Because thirdly, in our passage, there is a day of reckoning. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Just look at chapter 2, verse 1. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now that's the first appearance of the angel of the Lord in the book of Judges and it is a highly significant moment in the story. The fact that the angel of the Lord goes up from Gilgal near Jericho is telling us that this is the same person who appeared to Joshua as commander of the Lord's army in Joshua chapter 5. And if you were with us then, you'll remember 
we said that the angel of the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you might say to me, well hang on just one moment, Jesus hasn't been born yet. Well that's true. But Jesus is the eternal God. He always was with God the Father. And there are a few occasions in the Old Testament when he comes into our world as the angel of the Lord with a word from heaven. And because of who he is, what he has to say is of the greatest importance. So, at the beginning of Israel's campaign, he appeared to Joshua with instructions for the conquest, and now he's come to review how things have been going and to give his verdict on Israel's performance. Have his orders been obeyed or not? And he's come to a place called Bochim. And that's important because Bochim, which means weeping, is actually another name for Bethel. It's not its real name. Bochim is the name that Israel gave to it in verse 5 of our passage because of what happens here. But you see, this is the city that Israel conquered right at the beginning of our passage this morning. So, so why has the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, come to Bethel? Well, there's something very big going on here. And to find out what it is, we need to keep one finger, please, in Judges and turn back to Genesis 28 on page 26 of your Bible. It's one of the most famous stories in the Old Testament. We must remind ourselves of it. Genesis 28, page 26. Now, while you're turning there, let me remind you of the context. Uh, Jacob has cheated his brother um, out of the family inheritance and he's running for his life. And we're going to pick up the story at verse 11. Genesis 28, verse 11. When Jacob reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until, what I've, uh, until I've done what I promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. 
He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now pause on that. You see, this is a huge moment where God is making a massive promise to Jacob. Land, descendants, descendants as numerous as the dust of the earth. And his family are going to be the channel of God's blessing to the entire human race. Now fasten your seatbelts and look at verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. And the footnote says that Bethel means house of God. So Bethel was the place where God made a solemn promise to Israel. It's the place where God established a unique relationship with his people. Jacob even gave the city its name. And in Judges chapter 2, come back there now, It's the place where God has come to deliver his verdict on Israel. And the verdict is devastating. To go back to the uh, analogy of an air crash, this is the black box. What God says here is the key to understanding why things have already been going wrong and why they're about to go a whole lot worse. And it contains a vital message for you and me. So come with me to the middle of verse 1 of chapter 2 and pay very close attention to what God says. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give to your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land, but you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now the key word there is the word covenant. And a covenant is a promise Uh, It's a promise that is confirmed in a ceremony of some kind. So a wedding is a covenant uh, in which people solemnly promise to be faithful to one another in a special public ceremony. Now God had made a covenant uh, with Israel back in Genesis 28 when he promised to give them the land of Canaan. And he acted on that promise when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt and led them through the wilderness into the promised land. Notice the two big truths about God in verse 1. Number one, he's the God who rescues his people from slavery. He rescues, always true about God, 
And he's the God who is faithful. He keeps his promises. What does he say? I will never break my covenant with you. And it was Israel's responsibility to be faithful to the Lord by not making a covenant with the people of Canaan. Instead, they were to break down their altars. But Israel broke the covenant. How do we know that? Where do we see that? Well, look with me at the promise that the spies made to the Canaanite at Bethel in chapter 1, verse 24. They said to him, we will see that you are treated well. That sounds Christian, doesn't it? Sounds really tolerant, doesn't it? What could possibly be wrong with it? Well, the underlying Hebrew expression there is, we will do, Hebrew word, hesed with you. And the word hesed is a covenant word. To do hesed with somebody is to make a covenant with them. God said, you will not make a covenant with the people of the land. But that is precisely what Israel did at Bethel. So in chapter 2, verse 2, God says, why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you, I won't drive out the Canaanites from before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare. You see, the covenant that Israel made with the man at Bethel was a compromise with the entire Canaanite way of life, including their religion. And you see, you and I mustn't think of the Canaanites as, you know, essentially pleasant people with one or two minor blemishes here and there. They were evil beyond anything you and I can imagine today. If you chase up the references on the Canaanites in the rest of the Old Testament, the picture that we're given is of a people who were shockingly and persistently degenerate. Specifically, they were guilty of the most extreme forms of sexual depravity, including incest, including bestiality, and perhaps most sickening of all was their regular practice of burning their own children alive as a sacrifice to their gods. So they were enemies of God and God had pronounced judgment on them. They were to be destroyed. And you see, by making a covenant with the Canaanite at Bethel, Israel was saying, well, we don't have any great problem with this. You know, we're tolerant people. We we can put up with this. Very shockingly, God says, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it. And so from now on, Israel will share the land with Canaanites. And the gods of the Canaanites will be a continual source of temptation and misery. And so chapter 2, verse 4. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud. 
And they called that place Bochim. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. But it was too late. Because sacrifices are no substitute for obedience. So can you see that the verdict of the angel of the Lord is that it wasn't the superior military firepower of the Canaanites that defeated Israel. It wasn't the iron chariots. And it wasn't the determination of the Canaanites to remain in the land. No, it was Israel's disobedience, their unfaithfulness. So you see, yes, at the beginning, the Lord was with the Israelites. But instead of simply going ahead and trusting him to give them the victory, they made an agreement with the enemies of God. And from that moment on, it was downhill all the way for Israel. So, what is God saying to you and me through this passage this morning? Let me suggest two things. First, never make peace with evil. The situation we see in Israel at the end of this passage, it didn't happen suddenly. It was the result of a slow process that began with one act of compromise. And you see, the problem is that doing something that is unfaithful to God can always be made to sound terribly reasonable, can't it? But it's always wrong. And in our day, the pressures to do that are everywhere, and often they're extremely subtle. I think one of the most dangerous is the pressure in our culture to be tolerant. Today, tolerance is portrayed as the supreme virtue. My friends, that is a lie. Because whether tolerance is a good thing or not, depends what it is we're being asked to tolerate, doesn't it? For example, our culture insists that there is no such thing as absolute truth and that all religions are equally valid. Sounds marvellously tolerant, that, doesn't it? But no Christian can ever say that. Doesn't matter how intense the pressure is. If we do, we'll find ourselves weak in the face of the enemy and like Israel, we will end up weeping and ashamed. One writer puts it very well. He says, to tolerate evil, however attractively packaged, is to bed with the devil and make a covenant with death. That's why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? So friends, let's be warned from this passage, never to make peace with evil. But the second thing that God is saying to us this morning is keep coming back to the cross. I don't know about you, but I think for me the most striking thing in the passage 
is that the very place where God made a covenant with Israel is the very same place where Israel broke it. I hope you're shaken by that. See, somewhere along the way, they lost the wonder of God's promise. They took it for granted. It no longer mattered to them in the same way that it did at first. And in the end, they forgot it and they made a covenant with evil in the very same place. Now, of course, the place where God has made a covenant with you and me is not Bethel, it's Calvary, it's the cross. And what God has done for us at the cross is spectacularly wonderful. Because without it, none of us would be able to stand before God on the last day. But my question for us this morning is, do we value the cross as we should? Do we treasure it? I know that we'll say that we do. Everybody in this building this morning will say, yes, I do. And I suppose you could say, on the outside, yep, things look fine between us and God. Surely, we can go on expecting God's blessing, both personally and as a church. But, But think about it for a moment. God says, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, and we haven't. God says, love your neighbour as yourself, and we haven't. I mean, just think about your life this past week. If everything that you have thought and said and done were put up on the screen behind me, How much of that would look like love for God and love for neighbour? How much? Is it possible that that movie would reveal that in some areas of your life you have made a covenant with things that God specifically hates? And you see, the extent to which we've been unfaithful in these things are warning lights on the flight deck of our soul that things are not right inside us. And left to ourselves, the plane of our faith will crash. You see, in our passage this morning, um, Israel's weeping and their sacrifices, they may have looked very religious, must have looked terribly sincere, all that crying. But nothing changed. And the rest of the book shows us that they drifted further and further and further away from God. Because, you see, at the end of the day, there is only one sacrifice that can renew the covenant you and I have broken. And that, of course, is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Only that can deal with our rebellion and all our compromising and all our unfaithfulness. 
And so, friends, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let's come back to the cross of Christ and let us commit our lives afresh to him this morning. Let's ask him to forgive us for our compromising and disobedience. And let's ask him for fresh grace to be faithful. Because, you see, like Israel in this story, uh, one day you and I are going to have to stand before the divine judge and hear his verdict on our lives, just as Israel did. And on that day it's going to be too late to change sides. No excuse will stand up under the scrutiny of the Lord Jesus Christ if the truth is we have despised the cross and we've made a covenant with evil. So surely the wise man or woman will want to be faithful to Christ now rather than weep before him then. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is far too easy for us to read this passage and think that we are different, that we wouldn't make the same mistakes, and even if we did, it wouldn't matter. But you've taught us that the proof of our love for you is obedience to your commandments. And the truth is, we've broken them again and again and again. Lord, have mercy on us. Help us to cling to the cross because it's only at the cross that we can find forgiveness and know that we are accepted as dearly loved children. And so it is as dearly loved children that we ask you to help us not to be complacent about our sinning and our compromising, but rather to confront these things and turn away from them with the strength that you supply. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.